Uh, Jeremy and I and Alan paid a visit to a dear saint this past week who's been battling with cancer for a long time, and it appears that she's reaching the end of her earthly pilgrimage. We arrived to her room, and she looked at us with a big smile on her face and says, we're all going to die. I asked her, what's been your experience of God through these years of your illness? And she said, well, he's been so good to me. My prayer has been that I would grow to reflect in some measure the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, that to some degree I would have that deep gratitude and love, and through this time he has been doing that. And then her husband looked at us and said, I see the job of the pastor as preparing his people to die. And so our culture pretends that death will not happen in a host of ways, but we shall all die unless Jesus returns and translates us to glory. In one of the men's groups, we studied Randy Alcorn's heaven And he speaks about this tombstone in an Indiana cemetery, 100 years old, that says, Paul's stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be, so prepare for death and follow me. And then scratched by an unknown passerby on that tombstone below that refrain are these words, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. Commentator on Ecclesiastes says death is an evangelist. The fact that our earthly life is short and then we enter eternity is a call to prepare now. There's there's nothing more important. There's no achievement or accolade or acceptability or acceptance that we could ever long for that approaches this in degree of importance. Alistair Begg in a sermon on Luke 14 recounts a time when he watched a video with some others on the life of Eric Little. And following the video, the narrator asked, what are you doing with the dash between the dates? And then he explained, eventually all our lives will be reduced to one hit with a chisel on a tombstone announcing the date of our arrival and the date of our departure. So what are you doing with the dash that represents your life? And so it's a weighty passage in a way, you know, it's painful to preach and painful to hear. There are two main truths. One is to practice generosity. The other is to prepare for eternity. The main audience is still the Pharisees, the religious elites, those who have it all together, those who think they have it all together. We wonder who the Pharisees are supposed to see themselves as in the parable. And so it's especially a warning and a warning to the Pharisees, and we need to attend it as well today. So let's hear God's word. There's a ton of hope and encouragement here, and there's also a warning for us. Hear God's word, Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, if, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. Written with us in mind as well, let's Ask God's blessing. Spirit of the living God, we come to a, a weighty passage. I pray that the words of the preacher, the thinking of the hearer, not wander astray, but that you would take our beings and draw us near, communicate your truth, and point us to Jesus, our glorious and gracious Redeemer, in whose name we pray, amen. So three points, how to live now, why to do so, and what to make good use of. So how to live now. And Jesus makes a contrast between two men, two drastically condition, different conditions, but more, two men with drastically different hearts, drastically different destinies. So first, there's a rich man. And his custom, his daily life, what he's about is to clothe himself with outer garments, a robe of purple, very costly purple dye extracted from a shellfish that was hard to get. So it was precious, it was identified with royalty. And he had these undergarments of Egyptian cotton or some kind of linen. So he dressed like to the nines. He loved doing that best fashions, best quality. And he would spend his time feasting, holding banquets and parties for his family and friends, these sumptuous, delicious food. And evidently his house was a castle as Lazarus lies at his gate, described by commentators as this large ornamental gateway to a city or to a mansion or even palace. So it's the ultimate in luxury. He's crazy rich, the upper echelons of society. And one commentator said something I wasn't really aware of. He says there were upper classes in Palestine, even among the Jews who had accumulated a lot of wealth and modeled 
their ostentatious lifestyles and extravagant consumption after the rich and famous of Rome. So they were moving on up to be like Rome's leaders. So how to live in light of eternity. What, how should the rich man have lived? See, it's not like this. And the issue is not his wealth. That's not the problem. Scripture nowhere idealizes poverty, nor does it demonize wealth in itself. In fact, Abraham is here as the most important patriarch, the one who represents the very heart of heaven itself in this parable, the model of faith, an incredibly wealthy man. The issue is the rich man lived for his luxury and privilege. That's what his custom was, revolved around that. And here again, we have to realize that verse 15, Jesus had directed himself to the Pharisees and he had called them lovers of money. And in 14 he said, you can't serve God and money. So what we have is a rich man who worships his wealth and all the favor and the attention the pleasure, the pomp that it gives him. And the thing is, he's never described as actually committing an evil act. There's no sin of commission here. He's even described as being hospitable to his social circle. He also regards Abraham in some sense as his father and also caring about the destiny of his family. There are some things that are okay, admirable about him. Nevertheless, his lifestyle reveals his heart. He's devoted to self and not God. And it's especially manifest in that test. In God's mercy, he places before him every single day. That's at the very gate of his house. A test, an opportunity, a call. Lazarus is at his door. And we even find that the rich man knows Lazarus' name. Like he knows, he knows his name. He sees him. Yet he ignores him time and again, over and over again. He hardly ever gives him a scrap to eat. It's this gross sin of omission, this flagrant, unconscionable sin of omission. His lack of generosity and mercy reveals he just doesn't know God. He just doesn't know him. He couldn't know a generous God and then speak or act like that. And so there's a test, you know, that God in his mercy presents to us too. Oftentimes an opportunity before us. And so one of the questions we have in our text is like, who are our Lazaruses, you know? Well, second, there's a poor man. And the poor man is laid or literally thrown, cast, dumped down at the rich man's gate. Whoever put him there didn't really want to spend much time with him. The idea is he can't get around. He's largely abandoned. He's dependent on others. He's put there to beg. And the poor man longs to be fed from something from the rich man's table. But the sense is the rich man rarely gives him any scraps. It's like, really, 16 and 15, these two chapters are, are need to be read in concert. He's like the prodigal longing to eat the pods given to the pigs. It's the same word, the same idea. He's just not getting anything. It's desperate. 
And similar to the prodigal also, the animals fare better. The dogs are getting the scraps underneath the table. And then it also seems the rich man's dogs continue their meal by coming to this poor man and licking his festering wounds. It's, it's, it's the lowest of the low. The contrast couldn't be more dramatic. And so how to live in light of eternity? Well, it's not that we must be poor and sick. Again, scripture never idealizes poverty nor demonizes wealth. More is going on here, just like more was going on with the rich man. And it's noteworthy and incredibly heartwarming that this is Jesus's only parable in which he gives a character a name. And his name comes from Eleazar, God has helped. God has helped. The rich man's the main character, yet it's the poor man that gets the name. It just bespeaks God's tender mercy. Whereas others may treat him like trash, God treasures him. And in verse 25, it says, he's been given bad things. And that's in contrast to the rich man who enjoyed your good things. And the sense is, the bad things that happened to him weren't his fault, like he didn't do them. Now even if he had, you know, God is rich in mercy. But the case here is that he was just dumped in this fallen world and bad things happened to him. In a culture where the righteous felt like their wealth was a reward and those that suffered felt, the righteous felt like they were being judged. Jesus is saying it's just not his fault. He was entrusted with very hard things. And so Lazarus, this man God helps, he could have gotten a lot really resentful and bitter, hard-hearted, angry, but the sense is he knew God was helping him. And he trusted God and trusted God's care and comfort. He, he was a man who meditated on the promises and, and prayed and had a real, a real relationship with God in the, in the hard things of life. So Jesus presents this drastic contrast but really it's also a drastic heart contrast. We have the faithless rich man whose unbelief is revealed in just this blatant lack of generosity to a poor man he knows that's put at his gate. And we have a faithful poor man whose belief is revealed in his dependence on God and God's help in terrible trials. So how to live? Well, it, it's faith in God it's revealed in generosity towards others. It's revealed in submission to God's will. So why do we do so? Why do we cultivate such a life? Well, Jesus also presents a drastic different destinies. Both the poor man and the rich man die. The poor man's wealth doesn't get him off. Wealth has limited value. In a sense, death is a great equalizer. We all die. So the rich man has this great, big, well-attended burial and funeral since his circle really appreciated him. But nothing is said of the poor man's burial. 
because he was ignored in this life. Nobody attended that. We don't know really what happened, but what is said is that angels came and God's servants to his children pick him up and carry Lazarus as if he were a prince to Abraham's side. It's almost like he was translated into glory like Enoch or Elijah was. You couldn't be heralded into glory in a more elevated way. The image is that he's ushered directly into God's banqueting table. The, the true sumptuous feast and he's seated right next to Abraham and we know how important the Pharisees thought about your ranking at the table. In chapter 14 we saw that and <laughs> Lazarus gets right there at the top with Abraham the father, the hero of the faith. The reversal couldn't be more dramatic. He never got a scrap to eat at the rich man's gate, but he sits with Abraham at God's great banqueting hall. Drastic reversal. He gets a hero's welcome into the party we all want to be welcomed to. And however, this drastic reversal really just manifests the full outworking of the poverty of the rich man in this life and the riches of the poor man in this life. And so Jesus is telling a parable and we're not supposed to take all the details literally. It, it's meant to graphically, viscerally relate to us, impress upon us these truths. So the hard part comes. The rich man passes immediately into Hades. And yet the description is more than Sheol of the Old Testament, that's just the place of the dead. It's described as a place of torment and anguish and flame, the place in which you await the final judgment. It's a place of conscious suffering. He knows he's suffering. And the sense of anguish is especially mental suffering. It's the spiritual torture of remorse, of an accusing conscience and missed opportunity. It does seem as a Jew he had a formal religion since he refers to Abraham as Father Abraham. But it's clear that he never had a real living faith in the God of Abraham, like Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. He, he didn't know that. So he who never showed mercy to Lazarus calls to Abraham for mercy. And it's interesting that he asks Abraham to get Lazarus to bring him some water. You see, hell doesn't rehab us. Hell is retributive punishment. He's still prideful and arrogant and self-satisfied. He thinks Lazarus exists for him. In fact, C.S. Lewis would say that hell is the outworking of our pride. 
So Abraham refuses, he's tender to him, child but firm. Essentially he says, look, poor rich man, you're, you're reaping what you sowed. This is the outworking of your life. You you failed to show mercy in life, so you won't receive mercy in death. Even more, you chose to ignore me in life, so I will withdraw my presence from you in death. This is what you chose. I'm giving you what you chose. And furthermore, this isn't a temporary result. It's irrevocable. You see, there's a great chasm between hell and heaven, and it has a purpose such that those in hell can't cross to heaven and those in heaven can't cross to hell. This is God's judgment. It's very hard to sit under it, but God never asks to be excused for this. In fact, it just says that God is just. He's just. And he will right all wrongs in this world. And part of his character, his admirable nature is that he will right all wrongs and judge the world. Underneath this is a call of mercy because the gospel is that the son came to save us from this and to take the judgment of God on our behalf and Jesus is sitting there appealing to them to come to him. So what to make good use of? Before this, the rich man appeals to Abraham to send Lazarus to his father's house, to his five brothers, to warn them of the real and present danger of their life. Again, he's asking him to send Lazarus Once again, viewing Lazarus as his little servant. He can't view Lazarus with heaven's lenses. In heaven's view, Lazarus is up with Abraham. In the rich man's view, Lazarus still exists to serve him. But Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man says, no, that won't do it. But if someone comes from the dead, they'll repent. Now notice, Lazarus never says, how in the world did I get here? Lazarus pleads mercy and asks for a warning. He understands his own moral responsibility. But Abraham refuses the request because it won't work says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And what Jesus is saying is that the issue isn't a lack of miracles. Like I've been doing miracles and many still don't believe me. Supernatural wonders in themselves don't engender faith, he's saying. We could even say more empirical evidence is not the thing we need. We have a ton of it. Jesus says what people need is to hear Moses and the prophets. The problem people have is we don't listen to Moses and the prophets. See, Moses and the prophets lay out the devastation of the human condition. Moses and the prophets look to our liability to judgment. And Moses and the prophets long for the Redeemer to come. And God's lavish grace to impute our judgment to his own beloved son in our place. Moses and the prophets foretold him. See, the scriptures are our life. 
The scriptures are living and active. The scriptures are able to change stony hearts to soft hearts. The scriptures produce faith and repentance and a changed life. We go to the Moses and the prophets, the whole scripture now. And so the question put before us in the passage is, am I one who goes to Moses and the prophets? Am I one that sits at the apostles' feet to know the word? If I look at my life, would I be described as someone who drinks in the word like it's the thing I need? Do I take it deep, deep? And you have to see some irony here because Jesus says if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not gonna be persuaded if someone were to rise from the dead. And see, Jesus is saying this. And yet Jesus is the very one who's been saying that Moses and the prophets say the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And that's why I'm here. See, I'm gonna lay down my life for you. I'm gonna suffer the full weight of God's judgment for you. I'm gonna drink in torment, anguish, and flames for you. My grace has so no limit, like I'll take it all for you. Give me the opportunity to take it for you. I will be buried, but death won't be able to hold me because since I took the penalty and satisfied it, I will resurrect from the dead on the third day. I will prove God's judgment is finished in my work. I will destroy the power of sin, death, hell, and the devil. And this resurrection will be proclaimed. The empty tomb will bear witness. This is the gospel that Moses and the prophets spoke of. Yet those who don't believe Moses and the prophets, even when the empty tomb is there, they won't believe me and many won't. But the reason is they don't have not enough empirical evidence. The reason is they fixed their mind on this world and they've refused to drink in the word. So what do you need to make good use of now in view of eternity? How do we prepare for our approaching death? What do we do with the dash? And what this parable urges you to do, urges me to do, is make good use of the word of God. The word of the gospel, that there could be such good news that the resurrected one could appeal to us to come to him. For this is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. You see, what the rich man wanted, that someone would come back from the dead, has happened. Therefore, if you believe on him today, you can be assured that on that day, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That God will send, we can't know all the details, but something along these lines will happen that you will be ushered into the very banqueting table of God, to sit in the inner circle of God and to enjoy his sumptuous feast because that's what he desires of each of you today. And would you just come to him? May it be, amen.
Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for merciful warnings in scripture. And please let us attend to your word now and to lean upon the gospel by faith and that bit by bit we may even see more of your generosity and mercy flowing through our lives for the good of many. Move in the hearts of your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.